Well, for 28 years, the Berlin Wall stood as a sign of separation between communist-controlled East Germany and West Germany. That wall of separation was a place of death, as 139 people were killed trying to go over the wall, and another 251 people lost their lives at checkpoints along the wall. In 1987, President Reagan went to the Brandenburg Gate and gave a speech. And as he pointed to that wall, he said to the leader of the communist world, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And two years after President Reagan gave that speech, what you see on the screen happened as the Berlin Wall came down. Now, as great as that day was when that wall of separation was removed, what we're going to see today is that over 2,000 years ago, there was another wall of separation that also represented death, a place of death for all of us who are here today that was torn down. And that wall was torn down, as we're going to see today, by turning in our Bible to Ephesians chapter 2 by Jesus Christ and what he did for us. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, we're told, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul begins this section by reminding the believers in Ephesus, as well as us today, what our position used to be, a position of separation. First, we're told we were separate from the Jews. Now, there, there are some here this morning who are of Jewish lineage. And as believers in Christ, as a Jewish person, you're called a Messianic or a completed Jew. You were part of God's original chosen And you have come to faith in Christ as the Messiah. But the vast majority of us here this morning are Gentiles. We're people who were not uh, born as a Jew or a Jewess. And as we look at what Paul is writing to us here today, he he tells us that we were in a dire position, one that can be uh, thought of and illustrated from a dark chapter of American history. As we think back just a short time ago in our country, there was a time of separation among the races here in America. There were African-Americans who were told that they were separate from whites. They couldn't go to school with whites. They couldn't eat in certain places. They couldn't use certain uh, facilities or water fountains. There was a segregation, a separation of the races. And this is what Paul is telling us this morning. He says, we who are Gentiles, he calls us the uncircumcision. That was a derogatory term. Paul says we were separate, we were excluded from certain places. As he calls us the uncircumcision, he wants us to to feel how we were separate, how we were seen as inferior by others. And those who thought they were better, he says here, are the so-called circumcision. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. It was what the uh, Jews had been given by God as a sign that they were the covenant people. Now, as Paul writes this, remember that he himself is a Jew. Jew, Paul is a Jew who says uh, the circumcision, he says, is performed in the flesh by human hands. Now, what he's doing here is he's tearing down this high title because the words that he uses here are used in a very negative religious context. They were used to describe a man-made idol that was made with hands. 
It's not that uh, the, the sign of circumcision was bad, but the, those who were trusting in that, he, he is essentially saying are like those who are trusting in an idol that they've made, a man-made thing that is powerless to save anyone. As you read Romans 2.25, we're told there, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Simply put, what Paul is doing is he's telling the Jews, you had the same problem as the Gentiles did. If you were here last week, you'll recall that we saw that Paul talked about those of us who were transgressors, trespassers of the law. We, we talked about what the word sin means. We saw that it's a term that was used by an archery judge. If you shot 100 arrows at a target and 99 of them hit the bullseye, but just one, even one were to hit outside of that center ring, the judge would write on your target, you sinned. You missed the mark. You fell short of perfection. And the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, all Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. And so what Paul is saying is, uh, there in Romans 2.25, he said, if you keep the law, but Romans 3.23 has already said, nobody keeps the law. You've, You've fallen short. So Jew and Gentile alike, according to Paul here, have the same problem. And as he talks about this, as he talks to the Jew and the Gentile, he he says that there's a problem for the Jews, but he says, coming back to us as Gentiles, he says, now as bad as that was for the Jews, he says, we were hopeless. Because what he says in verse 12 is, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. The word Christ is the word that means the Messiah. We hear the name Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Messiah. And what he's telling us is, as Gentiles, uh, the promise of the coming Messiah who would, who would save the Jews uh, was not something that we shared in at that time. It says, as Gentiles, we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, to, to understand what this means, I want you to think of something that many of us have seen on the news. You know that uh, in a war-torn area where rebels are advancing on a capital city, they're looting and killing as they go, and people are fleeing, and they're headed to the capital. And as they get there, hoping that that's going to be the last holdout of protection, when it looks like things are going to fall, the last area that usually is standing and where people flock to is an embassy like the United States Embassy. Because what they see are these helicopters coming in, whether it's the Marines or some other special forces group that are being sent in, they they come into this war-torn area, they land, they secure the area, and then what they're doing is they're gathering up the people in the embassy, those, uh, and they're evacuating them. And people are rushing to the gates. They see this this hope of salvation, this this, uh, chance of being rescued. But what they find when they get to the gate is only those who are citizens. Only those who are holders of a passport from the United States or some other allied country that we have a mutual commonwealth agreement with are told you are under the protection of the government offering the evacuation. And as Paul is writing to us here and to those in Ephesus, what he's saying is those who were the Gentiles were not passport holders. They were people who had no hope of rescue. They were excluded. They were outside of the covenant of promise. As Gentiles, he says, we were aliens, no hope. But then in verse 13, we read this. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those words, but now, remind us of what we saw last time in Ephesians 2.4. There we saw, but God. Do you remember that? But God. But God swooped in to save us. He sent his son from heaven to earth. Friends, this was the original special forces airborne coming in. Jesus Christ left his throne in heaven to come to earth to save us. And it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace. The word for there is called a causal conjunction. And what that's telling us is the one who caused us to have hope was Christ. When it says he himself, it's in the emphatic position where it says that there is Jesus Christ who has solved the problem. You see, the problem is sin separates us from God. And from one another. And it says that it is Christ who came. And he was the atonement. He was the one who uh, provided the bridge over that chasm of sin. He was the one that provided the bridge to bring us together as separate people. Paul tells us that it is Christ who made the two groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, as we read this barrier of the dividing wall has come down, I showed you the Berlin Wall. That's something many of us remember. But as Paul wrote this letter in 61 AD to the believers in Ephesus, they would have known of another dividing wall. There was a dividing wall in the city of Jerusalem within the temple complex. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Here's a model of what that temple looked like back in 70 AD before it was destroyed. Now, where you see that arrow pointing over in the far corner, that was called Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. And as a Gentile, you were allowed to come into the temple up onto the the area, but that was as far as you could go. This was the area reserved for Gentiles to come and worship the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. It says in Mark 11, 15 through 17, that this is where we read this taking place when we're told Jesus entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach them, saying, Is it it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? All the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. See, what Christ is saying is for the Gentiles who went to worship in that outer area, the Jews had said, this isn't where we worship. It would be like coming into Wayside this morning. As you walk through the doors of, of Wayside here at the 410 campus, or if you were out at the Stone Oak campus and you walked in there, instead of finding uh, things ready for you to enter into worship, there was a, a farmer's market going on here or a thieves bazaar of some kind. And you're saying, how can we worship with all this going on? Well, that's what the Gentiles faced. They came into the temple to worship the Lord and people were buying and selling and pushing aside and all this stuff was happening. And Christ came in and said, this area is the place for the Gentiles to worship me. But that was as far as the Gentile could go to worship. The Holy of Holies in the inner temple area was said to be where the presence of God dwelt. But a Gentile could only come as far as that balustrade or what was called the soreg. You see that arrow pointing to a wall. It was about four and a half feet high. And it was an area that uh, the Gentile could not go beyond. So there was a separation of the races. The Jews didn't worry about what was happening out in the outer temple because they said that's not where we worship the Lord. We come beyond this dividing wall, this, this wall of separation. 
And on that wall, there were, there were warnings to a Gentile. If they went beyond that wall, it was written in, both, in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Archaeologists have actually found uh, various inscriptions from the temple ruins. And this is a, a, a full uh, inscription that was found. And it says, no man of another race, that is a non-Gentile, I mean a non-Jew, It says, no man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have himself to thank for the death which follows. Now, Paul knew very well about this. You'll recall that in the book of Acts, we saw in Acts 21, 28, that Paul was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile beyond that balustrade, that soreg, that wall of separation. And a riot ensued and they were going to kill Paul until the Romans rushed in and rescued him. And that was the arrest that ultimately led to having Paul be in the city of Rome where he's writing this letter back to Ephesus in 61 AD. Now, if you were a Jew, you could go beyond that wall of separation. If you were a Jewess, a woman who is a Jew, you could go through what was called the beautiful gate. You would go from that far courtyard through the balustrade and up through what was called the beautiful gate. And as you entered in, you could go into the court of women. This was that outer area So as a woman, this was as far as you could go. You were still separated from God as well because the the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies in the inner temple. Now, if you were a man, you could go through the next gate called the gate uh, of the court into the court of the Israelites. So as a Jewish man, you went through that gate. You were still separated, though, because there as you entered into this court of the Israelites, there was another rail of separation. And this was a a place that separated you from the priest. You would bring your sacrifice and offering. And as you came, this was as far as you could go to this rail. And you would offer your sacrifice there, and the priest would take it to the other side, and they would prepare it in that slaughterhouse that you see. And then they they would offer it on the brazen altar. So there was a separation of the Jewish man. The priests were separated as well. They were on the other side of the rail. They were in the court of the priest, and and there was a a large area. There was a bronze laver called the sea, and this was uh, where the, the water that was used for purification and for the offerings and cleaning up all of the blood and the various things that were happening. But even within that court of the priest, you were separated. You were separated from the presence of God because as you look further back through that door, you see that there is an inner temple area. And as you went into this inner temple area, uh, the priests were still separated from God. What is taking place in this uh, inner temple is what we find in Hebrews 9, 2 through 7. There it says the priests would tend to the golden lampstand, to the table of showbread and the golden altar of incense. And so the priests were in this inner temple area, but you see that veil at the back of the picture, that, that reddish veil with the, the angels on it. That was the, a picture of the, the Ark of the Covenant that was behind the veil, the Holy of Holies. There was a separation from the presence of God. Once a year, the high priest would go beyond this veil to a place where he would offer the blood of the sacrifice on top of the, the Ark of the Covenant. This is what we're told in Hebrews ten three through 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
So the high priest brought an offering beyond the veil of separation. But he didn't stay there. He had to leave. He had to go out. And there was still this separation. It was like paying the minimum payment on your credit card where you're keeping it current, but the principal balance is still there. In order to pay the penalty for our sins, this is what Hebrews 10.5 tells us. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifices and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. You see, Jesus the Messiah took on flesh and blood so he could be the Lamb of God. The one that John one twenty nine says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First John 4.10 describes it this way, For in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's a big word, propitiation. It's actually the Greek word halismas. And this is the same word that is found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Hebrew Testament. And you know where we find the word halismas? It describes the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat above. That is literally called the halismas. And so what it says is the high priest would apply the blood of the offering to the mercy seat. And then it says, we've already been told in Hebrews, that could not remove the penalty of sin. But then when Christ came, he became literally the satisfaction, the payment. He removed and paid the penalty for our sins. That's what it means when it says Christ is a propitiation. Now, in Hebrews 10, we saw those sacrifices year by year did not take away uh, the sins, but what Christ did for us did. It's why as Jesus was dying on the cross in John 19.30, most English translations say as Jesus Christ was about to give up his spirit as he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Now, that's an accurate translation, but it doesn't describe for us really what happened. In the Greek text, what we find is Jesus Christ said, to teleste, to teleste. Now, you look at that word, you see T-E-T-E to begin the word. What that tells you is this, this is in the perfect form. And that means it's a once and for all completed action. Now, you see the next words, uh, T-E-L-E-O, that's teleo. That word means to finish, which is why we read it as finish. But it literally means to pay a debt, to finish or pay a debt. What did Christ mean, it is finished? What Christ meant is he said, paid in full. Paid in full. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what Jesus Christ was saying is, paid in full the penalty for sin when I died on the cross. He paid that penalty that we all owed as you read what happened as Christ was dying, Mark fifteen thirty seven through 39 tells us this. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That veil of separation, Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us was, was four inches thick. He said you could tie horses to two sides and that the horses could not tear that veil in half. 
And yet what we read is, as Christ said, paid in full, the veil was torn from heaven to earth. It was God saying, I'm removing the separation, the wall of separation, the sign that you are separate from me because of your sin has been covered. It's been removed. It's been propitiated. We could have read in 1 John 4, Jesus expiated the penalty. Expiation means to pay the legal requirement. But when you read propitiation, it means not just to satisfy the legal requirement, but also to remove the wrath. I shared with you before the illustration of a uh, man who was injured in an accident at work. The machinery malfunctioned. He had a horrible accident. He was rushed to the hospital. They were able to save this man's life. An investigation was done. OSHA came in and they said the company failed to maintain the machinery. Uh, So therefore, the company is at fault for what happened to the man. He's been maimed. He's crippled for life. They give him millions and millions of dollars to meet his medical bills, pain and suffering, to take care of this man's care for the rest of his life. So the penalty has been expiated. It's been paid. The satisfaction of the legal requirements of the law is done. But every time this man hears the name of the company, every time he sees a product that was made, every time he even thinks of what happened, there's this anger, this wrath within him. The requirement is paid, but the wrath is still there. When Jesus Christ came, what he did was not only met the legal requirement of the law, paying the penalty of death, but it says he removed the wrath of God as well. You know, when we get to the gate of heaven and God welcomes us home, he doesn't say to us, hey, Roger, go sit in that corner and be quiet. I don't want to hear from you for the rest of eternity. You're just lucky you're even here. I don't even want to look at you because you cost my son his life. Is that what the Bible tells us happens? Do you remember what we read in Ephesians 1? We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been welcomed into the family. You see, Jesus has not only expiated, paid the penalty, but he's propitiated. He's removed the wrath. He's restored our relationship. The Bible tells us to call God, Abba, Father, Daddy. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father. We get to run through the gates of heaven and he hugs us and he says, my son, my daughter is home. You're a part of the family. You've been welcomed in, not just the penalty and the wrath removed, but it says we've been reconciled. As we read here in Ephesians two fifteen through 16, it says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. When it says Jesus abolished, it means to make ineffective, powerless, or idle. Did Jesus Christ say when he walked the earth that he came to abolish the law? Is that what he says? No. It says he came to fulfill it. When it says he abolished the law, when he made it powerless or idle here, It's not the law that's abolished. It says the enmity, the wrath. You see, what Jesus did is he paid the penalty. He covered the cost. He restored the relationship. He removed the wrath. Christ didn't throw out the law. Instead, he fulfilled its requirements and the impact of the consequences for me and you. If we come to faith in Christ, we're no longer separated by our sin, but we've been reconciled. It says we're reconciled. That word means to bring together again. To bring together again. You know, if you've been 
breathing in the last week. You know that our nation right now is divided. We are the United States of America, but there's division in our land. There is enmity between people, different ideologies, different uh, belief systems, different values. We have a nation right now that is torn apart. And as we're reading today about what Christ did for us, Christ offers us reconciliation that applies not just to eternity, but it it applies to our day-to-day life. As we're talking about the reconciliation, the bringing back together of two divided groups, remember we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, two races that hated each other. And it says God was able to bring these two people and make them one. The reconciliation we're talking about today is not just for a a national level of reconciliation. It applies to our homes. There are husbands and wives right now in strained relationships. There are parents with children where there are wayward sons and daughters, prodigal children, and parents who are grieving. Or it could be the parent who is the one causing the grief in the relationship. It happens in your schools with friends. It happens in your workplaces. And as we're talking about Christ creating this bridge that covers the chasm of sin that separated us from God, it also applies to the ability to provide a bridge for us to one another. As he talks about bringing these two groups together, he he says that it is a new creation in Christ. This word for new here is not one in the, it doesn't mean new in the sense of something recently made. If that's what Paul wanted us to see here, he would have used the Greek word naos. Instead, he uses kainon. Kainon means new or fresh in character or quality. New or fresh in character or quality. What he's telling us is this is a never-before class, something that has never existed before. And you know what it is? It's called the church. God says, I've taken the Jew and the Gentile and I brought them together in the church. As you read Galatians 3.28, there we're told there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some have mistakenly taken this to mean that what God has done is eliminated Israel as a nation. That in God's plan for eternity, from the past to the future, that he's, he's replaced Israel. That's called replacement theology, and that's not what this is saying. If this were telling us that God has replaced Israel with the church and there is no longer a plan for Israel, then as we read, there is neither male nor female anymore. It wouldn't be like our society that is trying to say there is this gender uh, neuter where people can be whatever they want. That's not what God is saying either. Because if that were the case, then men would be having babies. Because it says he's re- there's neither male nor female, so God's removed the distinctives. Is that what happened? No. God has not removed the distinctives, he's removed the division. He's not removed the distinctives, he's removed the division. And what he's done is he's brought us together, the Jew and the Gentile, who were separated from one another. Just as he brought both of these groups who have been separated from God together, he says he's brought all of us who were separated from God together too, providing that bridge through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 17 through 18, it says, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
He says, whether Jew who were near, remember they, the priest only had a four-inch separation, but he was still separated from God. They were near. Or the Gentile who was far, all the way out in the court, the farthest court in, in the portico of Solomon. And when it says he's brought us to Christ, it says he's given us access. This, this word was used in ancient documents to denote an official in an oriental court who conducted a visitor into the king's presence. So the picture here is, as you get to, to a gate, you were blocked, but if there's a, somebody there to meet you and say, I'm going to be your escort, I'm going to take you into the presence of the king, that's what Jesus Christ did for us. We were separate from God. We can't get to God on our own. This word for access is used only two other times in the Bible. One of them is found in Ephesians 3.12. There it says, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. The other is in Romans 5.2. There it says, Through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. You see, what it's saying is without Jesus Christ being our way in to see God the Father, we would never get there. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14.6? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is our access. He is the way that we are ushered into the presence of God the Father. It's how we're welcomed home by faith through Christ alone. As we saw back in Ephesians 1, we've been made a part of the family of God, being adopted as sons and daughters. Verse 19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are a fellow citizen with the saints and are of God's household. And Christ, we're no longer called aliens, strangers. Philippians says our citizenship is in heaven. God has issued us a passport. Much better than that, it says you're not just a citizen, but you're, you've been adopted as a son or a daughter. Remember, we're not told to sit in heaven and be quiet for eternity. We've been told crawl up on God the Father's lap and say, Daddy. We've been adopted into the family. And as we're adopted into the family, he gives us another picture in verse 20. He says, we're a part of a building. It says, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone. Now, in ancient building practices, the cornerstone was the most important part of the building. This was the foundational stone that supported all of the structure. And it was also the guide by which all of the rest of the building was built off of. Now, in our day, a cornerstone is more of just a ceremonial thing. They put a little nice, you know, brick there in the corner of a building and they call it the cornerstone. And I think, sadly, this is the way some churches and believers treat Jesus Christ in our day. We say Jesus Christ is is just kind of a, a decorative feature in our lives or in our church. There are churches that have said we've rejected God and his word as our, as our guide and our standard. And we let the shifting sand of the world be what, what supports and directs and guides us. And the Bible warns us about that. It says if we build our house on the shifting sand of the world, what happens when the wind and the waves come? It says there will be a catastrophic collapse of that house. And the same thing happens in a church, churches that turn their back on God and say, well, you know, we can pick and choose from the Bible. It says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation. They, they, have, they were the ones that spoke God's word before we were given his written word called the Bible in your hand. And so when it says this is our foundation, what it's telling us is this is what the apostles and prophets have given to us. 
And this is our foundation. This is what not only is the integral part of what makes Wayside Chapel Wayside Chapel, but it should be the integral part of what makes all of our lives as believers. This is our guide. It's not something we pick and choose. If we do that, then just as a church can collapse, as we see happening in the world, there are churches every single day that close their doors. The Bible speaks in Revelation of God removing lampstands. When their light goes out, he takes them away. And as you look and see, what it says is those that are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets following God's word and have Christ as as the rock, the foundation of their faith, he says that church will grow and grow. So there's this mixed metaphor of the church itself growing as well as us as believers being in the church. As you look at what said, Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 16, 18, and I say to you that you are Peter, this is Peter the apostle, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And as we follow that design, what we're told here in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This building you're sitting in right now, it's not the church. 1705 Northwest Loop 410, or if you're at Stone Oak watching this message at 1300 Evans Road, as you look around the room, that's not the church. As you look around the room, you are the church. I am the church. As individual believers, we are the living stones being fitted together in God's building. This is what grows the body. It is the body of Christ, not the building, bricks and mortar. You know, as I look around this room, and I look at the various people who are here, you know what I see? As you look at the different people in this room, we're different. Do you realize that? There, there are soldiers and secretaries here. There are librarians and laborers. There, there are policemen and physicians. There are electricians and election officials. There, there are people here who are accountants and architects. There are people here from a multitude of different countries and nationalities. There are people here from different denominational backgrounds. And there are people here from different political affiliations. We have Democrats, we have Republicans, we have Independents. What is it that has brought us all together? It is our faith in Jesus Christ. The things that separate us in the world, our backgrounds, our titles, our our races, our, our economic, those things are removed as believers in Christ. We've been brought together. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, that is what has has brought us together as believers. And that is what we're reading about today. Jesus has brought us together to God the Father first and foremost. He's redeemed and reconciled us. But as God's redeemed and reconciled people, you know what he wants us to do when we walk out of the doors of Wayside this morning? He wants us to reflect the hope and the truth of that to the world around us. When we go back to the military bases where we serve, to our, the hallways of our schools, to our workplaces, our neighborhoods, God doesn't want us going out these doors being divisive. He wants us to be those who are building bridges, who are offering the hope of eternity to people. As we end today, I want us to end with a time of prayer. I want to lead us before the Lord as, as a nation and as a people and as individuals. And as we go to the Lord this morning, 
What I want us to think about first and foremost is us as individuals. There may be somebody here this morning who doesn't yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you're far from God. You're separate. There is a wall of separation because your sin is in place. And what Christ offers to you this morning is the gift of eternal life. He tore down the dividing wall. He paid the penalty. His blood has been applied to cancel the debt, but it's only good if you will turn from your sin and accept his gift of new life. And so if you're here today and you're far from God, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. He offers you that gift, that bridge to come home. As a nation, we're divided. It doesn't matter who you voted for in the election. It doesn't matter who won the election in terms of God and history. God would have still been on the throne if the candidate that has currently been elected were not the one elected. God is the king of history. God is still on his throne. And while the things that are happening in our country affect us personally and may create anxiety and fear for some uh, and for others, celebration, God says those things are not what we as believers represent in the world. Our citizenship is in heaven first and foremost. And he says, when we walk out of this door, we are to represent him first and foremost. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And we are to offer reconciliation and hope to those who are far and those who are near. And then finally, in your relationships with one another, whether it's a a friendship or a family relationship that is strained and divided, God says the same thing. I've provided the bridge home. If we will simply turn from our selfishness and our sins and turn to the other and say, I offer you uh, the, the forgiveness that I've received from Jesus Christ, there can be healing in our relationship. So as we go to the Lord this morning, I want us to pray for those things. Will you join me, please, as we do that? Lord God, there may be some here this morning who are far from you. There may be some here this morning who are scared and worried about what's happening. But Father, as I think about what you offer us, that bridge home, that bridge of hope, I think of John chapter 14. There you tell us in your word, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And then, Jesus, you spoke those beautiful words for us. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, Lord God, I pray for those this morning who maybe don't know the way, who have felt lost and separated from you. May they come to understand what the cross of Christ truly means, how you, Jesus, removed the wrath, you paid the account, The veil was torn in two by you, God, yourself, to show us the wall of separation was gone. And for those who accept your son by faith, you welcome us.
Father, I pray for the families this morning that are hurting. Husbands with wives, children with parents, extended family, maybe friends or co-workers where there is a strain in the relationship. Father, would we who have been forgiven by you extend that same forgiveness? Would we offer that same bridge home? And Lord, our nation is divided. As I look at the candidate choices we were faced with, few were very excited about either one. And Lord, we were deserving of those. You tell us in your word that we reap what we sow, and as a nation, we've been walking away from you. We've rejected the standards you've given us. We were deserving, Father, of judgment. We still are, and it's only because of your mercy and grace that you've not judged our nation. Father, we now have a president-elect named Donald Trump and a vice president named Pence. These are those that are in place. Whether it had been uh, another candidate or not doesn't matter. These are who we have. And Lord God, you tell us in your word that you can direct the heart of the king like water in your hand. And so we pray now, Lord, for these leaders in place over us. We pray for President-elect Trump. I think of the words of King Solomon as he was given the mantle of leadership in 1 Kings chapter 3. He said in verses 7 through 9, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge, your people to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Lord God, we pray that Donald Trump would be like Solomon, that he would humble himself and he would turn to you and say, Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. Lord God, would you surround him with godly men and women, a cabinet of advisors who not only have wisdom in terms of what the world says we need, but ultimately, Father, would they use your word as their guide? Father, would they turn to you? Would they humble themselves? Would you turn our nation back to you, Father, whether it's what is to come with the changes in law or the Supreme Court or the day-to-day governing? Father, we need you. Our leaders need you. We pray, Father, for reconciliation. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for healing in our land. We know it can come through you, Jesus. So we commit ourselves to you as your ambassadors to leave here today and spread the good news of hope, the good news of reconciliation. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you stand, please, and sing this closing song?